0: God bless you. Please be seated. Thank you so much for giving yourself to worship today. I sit on the front row. I don't get to see you very often, but I sure did hear you, and I thank you for that. Our children are dismissed to children's worship uh, now, and uh, what a blessing it is to see them. But uh, anyway, join me, if you will, in Exodus chapter 9, Exodus chapter 9. And let me begin by saying, um, I don't have much of a taste uh, for water. I, I drink water, but I can't tell the difference between tap water and bottled water. And I can't tell the difference between expensive tap water and or expensive bottled water and cheap bottled water. Can any of you I, I can't tell the difference. Uh, I can't tell the difference between I probably couldn't tell the difference between clean water and polluted water either. I just don't have that kind of uh, taste mechanisms in my taste buds, all right? I don't have that at all. But apparently King David did. Apparently King David was aware that there were differences between the waters and the wells in ancient Israel. And one day in 2 Samuel 23 verses 14 to 17, he is uh, running from Saul. He's in a cave and he just longs for water from a well in Bethlehem, his hometown. And, And so he says that. He said, oh, that I had some water from Bethlehem. I wish I could just have some water from there. Now, you can sympathize with the poor fella. He's been running from Saul. Uh, The Philistines are looking after him or looking for him too at different junctures in his life. And he cries out and says, Oh, that I had some water from this well in Bethlehem. Now, David is the leader of his little army. And all he does is that he, he articulates a wish. Oh, that I had some water from Bethlehem. He merely articulates that as a wish, and he's got some mighty men who run quickly out of the camp, who break through a Philistine garrison, who get into Bethlehem, which is controlled at this time by Philistines. They gather water for David, and they bring it back to him just so David can taste water from Bethlehem, his favorite water. Ladies and gentlemen, if David's wish was met by zealous compliance, what about the word of Almighty God? What's happened to all the sermons you and I have heard? What's happened to all the Bible studies? What about all the Christian books that we, we have read? What about the podcasts? And what about the conversations? What about the devotionals that we have um, uh, observed in our lives? What has come from them? Last week we looked at the peril of a hardened heart. And I want to make it very clear to you. Just in case there might be some doubt or you may not be aware. God never intended to give His Word merely as knowledge to His people. He never intended preaching to be a form of entertainment. Uh, He never really intended it just to make everyone feel good either. God has given us these things that we might change by deliberately obeying the Word of God. And so every time we are exposed to the Scripture, we need to deliberately obey it and implement it into our lives, or else we run the risk of a hardened heart. It's much like calloused hands. If you work a axe or if you work a shovel long enough without gloves, you'll find that uh, your uh, hands will rub against the handle of the axe or the shovel, so often it will burn some and it will eventually form a callus. And the same is true when it comes to Scripture. Scripture can form, Scripture can interact with our hearts so much that if it is not intentionally and deliberately implemented into our lives, we can develop something like a callus on our heart and our soul. It's what the Bible calls a hardened heart. In Ephesians 4, Paul would talk about Gentiles who've been exposed to the Word, so much so where they didn't repent that they are past feeling. And that's what can happen to the heart, and that's what can happen to the soul. Now, a hardened heart is rooted in two different problems. One, it's an exposure problem. It is an exposure problem. In other words, a hardened heart is the result of being exposed to the Scripture so often without deliberate implementation and obedience that the callous ends up developing. So it's not the person that's ignorant of the Scripture that has this problem. It is the person that knows the Scripture. And that leads me to the second thing about the problem of a hardened heart. And that is, a hardened heart is not only an exposure problem, a hardened heart is a church problem. You see, it's not the person that doesn't read the Bible, but the person that does read the Bible that is in danger of a hardened heart. It's not the person that scorns and scoffs at sermons. It's the person that appreciates them and attends them. Uh, It's not the person who has no interest in Christian literature, Christian radio, or Christian podcasts. It's the one that really likes this and may have a long list of them downloaded into their favorite electronic device. So it is not the ignoramus. It's not the pagan. It's not the individual, that uh, the atheist. It's not the agnostic that necessarily has this particular kind of hardened heart. It's the one that is exposed constantly to the Word, but through the years has not uh, deliberately implemented it into his or her life. God intended something different. In Matthew chapter 7, Jesus said, uh, beginning in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, in other words, they've got a knowledge base, Will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. So Jesus put a premium on doing the will of the Father. He goes on later in Matthew 7, in verses 24 through 27, and says, Let me tell you what the person is like who obeys the word and does it. Let me compare it to this. There's a man who builds his house upon the rock, and when the floods come and the winds blow, the house stands firm because he's built upon a rock. That's what it's like. To obey the Word of God. The Word of God gives you a rock in life. And so stability is rooted in obedience. He said, let me tell you what the person is like who does not obey the Word of God. That is the person who builds a house on sand. And when the floods come and the winds blow, the house is uh, obliterated because they built on sand. That's what it's like to hear the Word and not deliberately implement it. Now, that leads me to a couple enormous, enormous, heartbreaking problems. That leads to this. There are some in churches that have been going to churches for years and years and years, and they show up for work day after day and year after year, and the people at work cannot tell that they're Christians. Heard about this one deacon in one church that um, uh, uh, it it was revealed after he'd been working there a couple decades that he was a Christian. And all of his co-workers were surprised. Not because he was immoral. Not because he gossiped. Not because he cheated the company out of time and resources. But he was dead. There was no life. Christ was not coming out of him. And so that's one problem. Deadness. In other words, people cannot tell by the quality of our lives our relationships, our work, that we are any different than moral atheists. No different between some church people and the atheist who's got intense moral sensibilities. Dead. Just dead. There's a second problem. There are some people who are very committed to Bible study and to small groups and to Sunday school, and listening to sermons that, quite frankly, let's admit it, they are the meanest people on the planet. One fellow surrendered to ministry, and he spoke with his dad about it. His dad had been hurt and wounded in a church years ago and would not go back. He maintained a tender heart. He said, son, I'll support you, but you need to understand. There is no nothing worse than church hate. Ladies and gentlemen, there's some churches and some Christians that got a poor name in the community. They are as mean as they can be. And some of it do because a very strong sense of righteousness about their opinion and they confuse their opinion with the word of God. And by the way, let me just say to you, if you embrace the word of God, you still aren't supposed to be mean. Is that not a revelation? There is never any excuse for meanness. Now, once in a while, we've got to take a stand, draw the line. But if you're doing that every 10 minutes, you're not spiritual. You're mean. That's just it. And I don't know, maybe you've been wounded by that. I know I have. And um, uh, I, uh, I'm concerned about that. And and But that's something that churches and Christians have got to get past and get right with God. Frankly, some of them, I think, need just need an exorcism and a good dose of salvation, to be quite honest with you. And I'll preach on that at the end of this message. But in any case, we've got to be careful that we've got the tenderness and the sweetness of Jesus Christ. These are the results, that deadness and meanness, the result of constantly hearing the Word of God without deliberately applying it in Scripture. And Moses faced that in Pharaoh. Moses faced that in Pharaoh. Pharaoh, here in the text, is exposed multiple times to the Word of God through Moses and through Aaron and probably some other means as well because Moses and he grew up together when they were much younger, up until the age 40, and he did not respond appropriately. He did not deliberately apply the Scripture. And the Bible says he had a hardened heart. And I want to show you some signs this morning of a hardened heart. I shared four with you last week. I want to share with you four more today. And the first one is this, stiff. Stiff despite pain. In other words, the person stiffly and stubbornly insists on their way despite the pain God may bring in their life or someone else. Proverbs 20:30, 30 in the Good News Translation says, Sometimes it takes a painful experience to make us change our ways. Well, that's true, and that's where a lot of people end up finding some change in their life, is at the point of their greatest pain. I've told people often, when they're going through some pain, through, through some reversal, you are about, if you will follow God in your pain, if you'll be humble before God, you're about to become greatly used by Him. Hold on, this is a turning point. Now, that's a wonderful thing when people stay humble and pliable before God, when they walk with Him. When they are um, submissive to his ways and to godly counsel, that's how it can be. But, ladies and gentlemen, there are some people who experience pain and nothing changes, and that's the way it is with Pharaoh. Pharaoh here in Proverb, uh, excuse me, um, Exodus chapter nine, beginning in verse eight, experiences boils on the people in his court and throughout the land of Egypt, and the Scripture says. In verse number 10, that Moses and Aaron took ashes from the furnace and stood before Pharaoh, and Moses scattered them towards the heaven, and they caused boils that broke out in sores on man and beast. So imagine this. All the humans and all the livestock are covered in boils. Look at the result in verse 11. And the magicians who were filled with demonic power, could not stand before Moses because of the boils. For the boils were on the magicians and on all the Egyptians. So you've got these magicians in Pharaoh's court and you've got citizens of Egypt writhing in pain. You can hear the bellowing of cattle from the field. You can hear the bleeding of sheep from out in the pasture. You, you hear the whimpering, the crying of the magicians in the court and the mourning and the hallowing of uh, the citizens of Egypt. And look what Pharaoh does. Look how he responds to all of this pain. But the Lord hardened the heart of Pharaoh. He did not heed them just as he spoke to Moses. Now, Pharaoh has crossed a terrible line here. Pharaoh has hardened his heart so often against God, God permanently hardens it. He will not change in the face of pain. You find a person that constantly overdrafts their bank account and get phone calls and are embarrassed when they're denied a purchase. You get phone calls about credit cards, end up breaking your wife's heart once again, and she stands weeping, losing your temper. Of course, you never lose your temper. You actually find it, don't you? And scare the daylights out of your children, and horror is written upon their face, Keep. Getting your heart broken over dating bad boys and won't change, ladies and gentlemen. Pain without change may reveal a hardened heart. But there's a second, and that is same, being the same uh, despite uh, confession. Uh, he um, uh, Exodus chapter nine verses twenty seven and twenty eight tell about the story of the hail. God rains down hail on all of Egypt. It is so fierce. The hailstorm is it breaks trees, it tears them to pieces, and it's accompanied by fire as well. And so, Egypt is destroyed by hail and set afire in many ways. And look what happens in verses 27 and 28 of chapter 9. And Pharaoh sinned and called for Moses and Aaron and said to them, I've sinned this time. The Lord is righteous, and my people and I are wicked. Entreat the Lord that there may be no more mighty thundering in hell, for it's enough. I'll let you go, and you shall stay no longer. My soul, Pharaoh is experiencing personal revival, is he not? Uh, he's turned. There's some hope here. Finally, Israel is going to be released from his tyrannical grasp. I've sinned. The people have sinned. The Lord is right in this matter. You all can go. Well, Moses goes and prays and asks God to relieve them of this plague of hail, And look what Pharaoh does. Verse 34. When Pharaoh saw that the rain, the hail, and the thunder ceased, he sinned yet more, and he hardened his heart, he and his servants. So the heart of Pharaoh was hard. Neither would he let the children of Israel go, as the Lord had spoken by Moses. He confessed his sin, but he did not change. It goes on in chapter 10. Verses 16 through 20, where here in chapter 10, you've got the plague of the locust. A similar scene occurs. He asks Moses to give him some relief. Moses goes and cries out to God, and uh, the story picks up in verse 16 of chapter 10. Then Pharaoh called for Moses and Aaron in haste and said, I've sinned against the Lord your God and against you. Now therefore, please forgive my sin only this once, and entreat the Lord your God that he may take away from me this death only. So he went out from Pharaoh and entreated the Lord, and the Lord turned a very strong west wind, which took the locusts away and blew them into the Red Sea. There remained not one locust in all the territory of Egypt, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he did not let the children of Israel go. Once again, confession is followed by repeated sinful disobedient behavior. The confession made no difference in his life. I don't know if he was flippant i don't know if he was insincere but the confession was not heartbreaking to where it changed his life when that occurs when that occurs we may be witnessing a hardened heart but there's a third mark as well and that is selective chapter 10 verse 24 talks about the plague of darkness how darkness hovered over all of egypt And uh, light was in the Israelite camp in the land of Goshen, but among the Egyptians there was no light. Now, the text doesn't explain what all that means, but apparently it was impossible for the Egyptians to create any natural light. Besides the sun being blocked out, they were unable to create any light with fire or other instruments. Not so the Israelites. God made a distinction between them. And the Israelites had light even in darkness. And so Pharaoh um, calls Moses and Aaron uh, to come before him. And he uh, accommodates their request to go. Now, there are three things that God required of Israel when they left Egypt in order to fulfill his command. He wanted them to take all the adults, all the children, and all the livestock and go three days into the wilderness and sacrifice and worship him there. I guess that's four things. The adults, the children, the livestock, three days to sacrifice is what they wanted. They came before Pharaoh with this request, but look what Pharaoh does in chapter 10, verse 24. Look here. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, watch this, Go serve the Lord, only let your flocks and herds be kept back. Let your little ones go with you also. So, it's okay to go three days into the wilderness, away from the Egyptians, where they won't be offended by your religious practice. That's okay. It's okay to take your livestock and your herds. It's okay to take the adults, or excuse me, it's okay to take the children. What I will not let you do is I will not let you take your livestock and your herds. The adults okay, the children okay, three days to sacrifice, that's okay, You know, three out of four ain't bad. Apparently, he and meatloaf were related, but three out of four ain't bad, and I'm going to let you go except for that one thing. We're negotiating here. We're bargaining here. I'll give you three if you can give me this one. Pharaoh was selective in what he obeyed, and ladies and gentlemen, the hardened heart will do the same. Instead of tithing, they'll merely give. Instead of witnessing and telling people about Jesus, they'll merely invite people to come. All of that's good. But ladies and gentlemen, God's got specific commandments that we are to pursue. Um, You know, I won't murder anybody. I won't uh, worship another God. But uh, promiscuity, that's not that big of a deal to me. Uh, Maybe a variety of other things. But partial obedience, selective obedience to the commands of God. They approach, they approach, Uh, God's Word and His commandments, much like a menu at a restaurant, as if we get a choice. Ladies and gentlemen, I just need to let you know, the commands God has given to us are all obligatory on every child of God, always and at all times. There's no selection. God is the only one who selects what commands we obey. He is the Lord, and we surrender and submit everything to Him. Selective. And then there's a fourth mark. And that is severance, severance of a relationship, permanent severance of a relationship, completely cutting someone off without any uh, more effort on our part when there's an opportunity to heal a relationship. Look at chapter 10, verse 27. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, you've spoken well, I will never see your face again. Most likely, these two grew up together. There's a long relationship here. Moses came up in the household of Pharaoh. Most likely, they were contemporaries. This is probably Ramses too, who lived during the era of Moses. And he's breaking a relationship that endured for 40 years. And Pharaoh is saying, I will never make another effort at all to make this relationship right. My first pastorate was a wonderful time in my life. I was 26 years old went to pastor the First Baptist Church of King Street, uh, South Carolina. The church had just finished building a worship center much like this one. And um, uh, the previous pastor led them to do that. I had the opportunity to pay it off. And uh, we did there, got the whole thing paid off in about four years. But uh, while I was there, there were five older deacons that took me under their wing and showed me how to be a pastor and how to be a leader. And one of those happened to be Aubrey Lewis. Aubrey Lewis had been very effective and very successful in the uh, co-op electric company he worked for while there. He'd raised a wonderful family. And by the time I got there, his wife was a lovely Christian woman. His children were. In fact, his daughter was married to a minister who was evangelism director for the state of South Carolina for another denomination. But when Aubrey introduced himself to me, he did not immediately start with his success or with his blessings. I had been with Aubrey for an hour before he told me two of his downfalls. He said... The pastor before the pastor before you, I gave him a hard time while he was here. And I would fuss, fight, and fume with him in deacon's meetings. And he left, and another pastor came, and he preached a message, and it got all over my heart, and my wife got in my ear, and I realized I was wrong at how poorly I treated our previous, previous pastor. And so he was in town one day to preach a revival at a church, and I took him to breakfast one morning, and I spent that entire time apologizing and getting things right with him. He told me that. That's one of the first things I learned about Aubrey Lewis. He didn't pull out an impressive resume. Instead, he talked about something humiliating and embarrassing in his attempt to make a relationship right. But then he told me something worse. He said when his daughter fell in love with this young man, he was upset with her and with the young man. They got engaged and he opposed it because this young man, was part of another denomination. Now, he was godly. He believed the Bible. He believed in evangelism, the Great Commission. He walked in purity. He walked in holiness. He just wasn't a Baptist. And Aubrey was so offended by that and so bothered, he didn't go to the wedding. He didn't go to the wedding. He heard a message. God spoke to his heart. He changed his mind. He made things right with his daughter and son-in-law, and he had done so well with that, that opened the door for me to become friends with them as well. And we enjoyed some great fellowship, and I learned from his son-in-law some remarkable things. But here's what you've got. You've got a man that has got a very strong will, who nevertheless, when he heard the Word of God despite his embarrassment, despite his shameful behavior, despite those foolish decisions, got it right with God and got it right with his family and his former pastor. He was pliable. In other words, he did not say like some people say, I'll never do anything to improve that relationship. I've done all I'm going to do. I don't care how they change. I don't care how many times they apologize. I'll have nothing to do with that relationship again. Now, I realize there are probably some of you that are in a similar situation right now. And just because there's no healing of the relationship does not necessarily mean it's your fault. If it is, fix it. But it takes two. And so you may be longing for a relationship to be improved, but you're not getting a lot of cooperation from the other party in the relationship. I understand that. That happens. But if a relationship is severed, and it's not healed, make sure it's not due to your stubbornness and hard heart. Make sure you maintain a posture where you say, if there's humility and if there's an opportunity to heal the relationship, I'm going to do it. I'm going to give my all to it. Or else we may be dealing with a hardened heart. Okay, Dave, I'm convinced. I need to implement God's Word in my life. I need to deliberately apply it. What do I do? Well, last week I gave you the acronym SPACE. And that is only the first part of a two-part application process. Um, Elon Musk would like this, but the acronym is really SPACE PETS. I think Rick Warren came up with this back in the 70s or 80s. The 80s, I'm sharing it with you because that's the greatest decade in American history. And so it's got to be good. And SPACE PETS means this, S. Uh, happens to be is, as I look at it, let me explain a little bit more. In the biblical text, you look for these things in the biblical text. So when you're exposed to the biblical text, when you read it, when you hear it, uh, when you are exposed to it, you ask one of these questions. S, is there a sin for me to confess? Well, clearly there's something today in this text, if it's applicable to you. P, is there a promise for me to collect? Has God made a promise in this text, I can go before him and plead with him to uh, grant. And can I claim it? Um, Then, A, is there an attitude for me to change? Obviously, uh, Exodus 9 and 10, there sure is. Uh, C, is there a command for me to obey? There's not a direct command in the Scripture, but you may think of something uh, in some other place of the text that is uh, relevant. Uh, E, is there an example for me to follow? Where well, there's one not to follow, and that's Pharaoh. There is one to follow, and that's Moses and Aaron. Then, P, is there a prayer to pray? Is there something about this text that I can shape into a prayer? E, is there an error for me to avoid? Well, that's pretty clear from the example of Pharaoh. T, is there a truth to embrace? Is there something new to believe? Is there something new to embrace? that arises from this text? And then S, is there something to tell? Can I take something from this text and go tell someone else and use that as a vehicle by which to communicate the goodness, love, and grace of God? I know of one man that would visit different offices during the day, and he would get into a conversation, and he would say at an appropriate time, "Uh, by the way, tell me what you're reading lately. And he would listen And then at the appropriate juncture in the conversation, he would say, well, let me tell you what I'm reading. And then he would share something from his devotional life that morning and lead many people to Jesus Christ by engaging that method. What are you reading? Here's what I've been reading. In other words, he found something to tell. Now, let me make something explicitly clear this morning so that there's no confusion. (coughs) Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 say this. For by grace are you saved through faith. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. What happens to a lot of church people who may be struggling with a hardened heart is that I've observed many of them will come up with an alternative approach to salvation. They don't really know or embrace the biblical approach, but they have a traditional approach that permeates many of our congregations, and it's not biblical salvation. It is something invented by other humans, well-meaning people, church people. For example, have you ever heard someone say, all you have to do to be saved is to, give, is to invite Jesus into your heart? Well, Revelation 3:20 says, behold I stand at the door and knock and if any man hear my voice and let me in I will come into him and dine with him and he with me. Well, that's entirely true. To be saved you do invite Jesus into your heart, which is the throne room of your life. But ladies and gentlemen, the problem with that is not that it's not true, it's just not complete. That's not enough knowledge to be saved and to deliberately implement into your faith. Why in the world would you ever want to invite Jesus into the home of your heart? Because it's a wreck. It's filthy. It's dirty. It's not worthy for the presence of the king. But ironically, he's the only one that can clean it. We are desperately guilty before God, filthy, disgusting, repulsive before a holy God. And the degree and the intensity of that is so great it ought to break our hearts and we should have godly sorrow before God. That's where we start. And then the only hope is the all-sufficient, atoning death of Jesus Christ at the cross and His resurrection. And then we place soul, singular faith in the death and resurrection of Christ and we eschew and repudiate any notion of virtue or self-righteousness or works because there's no hope at all. The only plank we have to float to glory is the grace of God. So real salvation does not begin with accepting Jesus into your heart as important and as true as that is. Real salvation begins with shame-faced humiliation before a holy God when we admit to Him we're busted, we're broke, we're filthy, we're repulsive. Why in the world you you ever love me? I don't know. And I'm coming only to you because you have invited me through the death and resurrection of Christ. And I'm putting faith only in the death and resurrection of Christ. When we do that, then Jesus is ready to come into our heart and be the master and be the Lord. In a previous generation, the idea was not merely accepting Jesus as your Savior, but it was joining the church. And I hope everyone joins the church. That's true, but it's not what saves. What saves is the grace of God and our faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now listen, listen. Here's what a hardened heart will do. A hardened heart will conspire with your mind and your soul and tradition to keep you from real, genuine salvation. And that's why we've got so many church members and churches across the land that are dead and mean without any knowledge of the real God and know absolutely nothing about walking with God. But I want to assure you, let me assure you, this morning it can be different for you. There is in this place enough grace and enough love from God Almighty to save you, cleanse you, and bring you up close to the precious bleeding side of the Savior. Jesus Christ is one spoils of blessing and majesty and glory and honor and riches and wealth. He's won them by dying on the cross, certified it, improved it by rising from the dead, and He's ready to load your life daily with those benefits. And He invites you to come take them simply By faith. Would you stand with me quickly, please? I want to pray for you. We want to give you the opportunity to call on Him and say yes to Him this morning. Father in heaven, thank you for the opportunity to turn to you and to magnify the good news of Jesus.